story of my life. I walk in, everybody else leaves. In case I tanked this morning, I'd like to thank you in advance for the gift. I'll cherish it deeply. I was slowly recovering Al-Anon. My name is Rick. Good morning to you all. And I am delighted to be able to report to you today on this gorgeous second full day of fall here in Erlanger or Erlanger, Kentucky, whichever way it's pronounced, and bear witness to you that by the grace of a loving, benevolent God and the power of a spiritual program of action called the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, active, committed membership in a fellowship called the Al-Anon Family Groups and the very loving, very clear guidance of a black belt Al-Anon sponsor. (laughs) It has not been necessary for me to plan any kind of death, (laughs) yours or mine since the 10th day of April, 1987. And for that, I am most certainly grateful. My home group is the Oakville Saturday Morning Allen on Family Group. My hometown is the Oakville, Ontario, Canada. Beautiful town of about 200,000, situated on the north shore of Lake Ontario, about 40 minutes west of the downtown core of Toronto. Lived in Toronto for most of my life, and then I met a beautiful woman and moved out and never looked back. We do, we do a lot for love. And this was a well thing that I did very well. I'm grateful for, grateful for that. Never thought it would happen to me again. I love a woman, too. It's Sunday morning, and my cup is running over. What a spectacular weekend this has been. Allison, thank you so much for the, for the invitation. I can say this, that if I was younger, single, and lived in Kentucky, I'd have a new obsession. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the speakers that have, uh, have preceded me, I'm honored to be in a to share a program with you. I, uh, I met Kathy for the first time in March when I had the opportunity to host her when she came to share at our, our, our local AA conference, a small little duo of about 4,000 people. And she, she nailed it. It was great to see her here again uh, again this weekend. And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and God willing, it would be lovely to have on. And Stephanie, we, our paths have, have crossed a number of times. And it's just, uh, just great to see you again. And I, I enjoyed our AA speaker yesterday. And... <laughs> I've been starting to do this lately, and I'd invite you to do this too if you find any kind of meaning. Is that when we hear members of Alcoholics Anonymous share, those of us who are in Al-Anon, try to eliminate or try to kind of put aside the alcoholic, the drinking story, and listen to the alcoholism story. For yesterday, we heard Mark talk about this thought entering his mind that the solution was to end the lives of his family. And that would cure his problem. And is that not one of our deals? And so it is one of our deals. And we laugh at that. We're the only room on the planet that laughs at that, by the way. 
you know, when I, when I was teaching, I, you know, I'd kind of meet the parents of the students I got to teach in the, in the beginning, and I never once said, you know, well, hello, parents, you know, my, my name is Mr. Jatuk, and, and just so you know, I haven't had to plan any kind of death for 30 years. <laughs> and I've never had to say it, and if I did, they would not laugh and clap. <laughs> but somehow we get that. There's something about our obsession with the drinker that leads our mind to bend and twist to the point where they are the problem. And so then we need an answer to the problem, so we eliminate the problem. <laughs> and that's where we go. And that is, a, for me, one of the definitions of, the, of insanity for the Al-Anon is that I begin to believe that... Any and so I enjoyed Mark's talk very much, and I congratulate the committee and all of you here in Kentucky for inviting an Alateen member to share and giving her a highlight spot like you did. So applaud yourself for that. That was a beautiful, beautiful thing. Because I, too, like our marvelous speaker last night, was in Alateen. And it seems like another lifetime ago. I actually, if I had not left, I would be able to say that I've been a member of this fellowship since April 1968. I was a boy of 11 years old when I came to you. But I left after a period of time. I finished Alateen. They kicked me out. You can't be bald and have a beard and stay in Alateen. <laughs> I was wounded. I was offended. Rejected again. So I kind of went and hung out in Al-Anon for a, for a fair length of time, actually. And then, uh, yeah, but, but then I met her. <laughs> she was way more exciting than any of you. And I left. And came back with my tail between my legs in 1987. So bravo for inviting the Alateens to be a part of this. And, and Sarah, thank you for that really vulnerable, marvelous share last night. It, 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 it touched me deeply. I identified a lot uh, with, with, with many, many things, many that you shared. So thank you. Thank you for that. And met before. And, uh, and it's great to see some old friends. Tom and, and Becky had breakfast with them yesterday from a time I was down in uh, um, Baghdad. In Kentucky, <laughs> no, that was him. And uh, lovely to have breakfast with them, and of course, you know Sherry and Bruce. You know, just just absolutely delightful, delightful. Any of those who were privileged ten years ago to be at the Allen on International Air in Pittsburgh, you know, when when Sherry, Bruce, and Anna shared to the entire assembly of Allen on worldwide, the Allen on International Convention. It, it, it was then and remains to this very day the finest family panel I have ever heard. So bravo to them. Absolutely outstanding. And then, and then to, my, to my perfect host, Steve. Now generally, generally you know, I, I, like to, I like them to do something stupid so I can gag on them. But he didn't do anything crazy. You know, generally they say, you know, I'll be there waiting with a sign. And, and so like one time I show up, at the, it was in Vancouver, in Canada this happened. And, and, I, and I, they said, you know, I will be waiting with a sign in the baggage area. That's generally where they do it. And so I, I pick up my bag in Vancouver and I'm waiting around. I don't really see anybody, but there's this really kind of frightened guy standing there vibrating. <laughs> they often do that. Are you the and, and But he was holding up a, a, like a, a flap from a cardboard box. <laughs> and so I kind of hung around for a while and everybody left and there was this very nervous guy you know, holding up this flap from a cardboard box with nothing on it. And so I thought, well, I wonder, if, I wonder if he's the guy. He kind of has the look. You know, the deer in the headlight look. 
And so I walk up and I say, you know, hi, my name's Rick. Is there any chance that you're here to pick me up? And he looked at the flap pointing at him and he said, oh, yeah, and turned it around. (laughs) I said, give me the keys. I'm driving. (laughs) Oh, God, listen to what's happening. We're in Al-Anon and we're laughing. And when the laughing happens, the healing is underway. Because too often we are the ones with the terminal seriousness. You walk into a place where, where you know, blessed sometimes you have an AA meeting and an Al-Anon meeting happening at the same time. Go to the, you know, if you want the AA meeting, go to the one where the laughter is. Want the Al-Anon meeting, go to the wailing and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> and that's us. You know, in the Church of Our Lady of Perpetual Doom. But we have a program of recovery here. We have a solution. We have a way out of our disease, not theirs. I don't have a way out of their disease. They got to find that one. But you have given me a way out of mine. And for that, I am really, really grateful. So thank you. Thank you for all, all of that. There's a, an island called Borneo in Asia, you know, kind of a Pacific Ocean. 20th century, early on, they, uh, they would hunt monkeys. It was really fascinating how they would catch the monkeys. They would get a coconut. and one end, they'd drill a little hole and drain the milk out of the coconut. On the other end, they'd make a bigger hole, large enough just for the hand of the monkey to go in. And on the small end, they would attach a bolt and a chain and then tie the chain to a tree. And on the larger end, where the hole, the hand for the monkey could go in, they would pour food into the hollow cavity of the coconut and then spread seeds all around. And the monkeys would be attracted by the food. And they would start with the seeds and all the food around the coconut. And eventually they'd look inside and they would put their hand in the coconut and grab the seeds and try to get their hand out. And it was stuck. And they would flail around. But they would not ever let go of the food. And the hunters would simply come by. When all they had to do to save their life, is that not a metaphor for my life? What I think I have is nourishment but I will take it to my grave, believing that if only I hand out of that coconut. A dear friend at home that says our growth, we grow by subtraction. It's not so much that we grow by what we get. We grow by what we chip away. It's a marvelous story of a boy watching Michelangelo carve the David Marvelous statue. If you've ever been to Florence, you know, it's like this gigantic, beyond life-size, spectacular rendition. Carved it out of a block of marble, and the little boy watched Michelangelo carve that thing, and when he was finished, he said, good God, he said, how did you know that that guy was in there? (laughs) And the answer was, well, it was simple. I just chipped away all the parts that we didn't need. And is that not a beautiful way to look at the phenomenal spiritual power of the 12 steps when we apply them to our lives as family members of alcoholics, that the person that emerges is like somebody we don't even recognize. Who is this person? 
when I find myself in situations doing things that intuitively I could never handle before. And all of a sudden, it seems like the most natural thing to do. And that's what happens when we involve ourselves in recovery instead of just relief for me. You know, at home, we do this funny thing. It's the only place I've ever seen it. You know, kind of all over your country and mine. I've never really seen it happen anywhere but in Ontario. And so we asked, the, you know, the chairperson to stand up and, and identify, you know, before they kind of introduce the speaker. And I think it's kind of a good idea, especially when you consider, you know, that, that as we know, anybody can join AA, but, you know, you've got to know someone to get into Al-Anon. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm here to tell you that I've known five of them. Two by birth father and a, and a grandmother, but really what's more important to the story that I'm sharing with you this morning is I've chosen three in successive, one consecutively. And of the three that I chose, two of them I met in Al-Anon. So if you're here today in Al-Anon and after you, know, you listen to AA speakers and you think you're identifying, you want to say, man, I wonder if I have a problem with alcohol. What I'm going to share with you is that if you think you do, ignore anything that any AA member will show you or say to you, and simply at the end of this meeting, come up to me and say, do you find me attractive? (laughs) 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 And if the answer is yes, you just run like heck to AA. (laughs) Because if I think you're cute, you're a drunk. Look out, Allison. (laughs) Thanks for playing along. (laughs) Isn't it amazing how we can continue to choose them and choose them? You know, I'm a teacher by training, a rescuer by birth. But I I, I like to, when I stand in front of a crowd, I just kind of like to ask a few questions. These are very real questions. So I'd just like to say, you know, how many people here are in Alcoholics Anonymous? How many are joining us to celebrate? Thank you, thank you very much. You know, look around, ladies. You know your potential. (laughs) Potential ex-husband could be very well in the room here this morning. And how many people here, how many people are in Al-Anon? You know, because we're at an Al-Anon convention. Awesome, love you. You're my people for sure. So how many people have hooked yourself up with one of them? Yeah, come on, it's honest. You know, let's share a little bit. One alcoholic. Yeah, okay, good, good, good. Now, that might have been an accident. Maybe. How many have chosen two? Okay, so now we're no longer getting into the realm of accident. This could be, this could kind of be purposeful. How many have chosen three? Okay, so any, any illusion of accident is now complete. We're now entered the realm of full aware choice. How many people have had a relationship with one, married them or lived a long time, separated that, married them again? We know there's one. Yeah, okay, put up your hand. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We have a special program for you. <laughs> How many people have been in Al Anon and gone to AA looking for one? God help me. And yet, for most of my life, I have lived under the illusion that the problem is out there. I'm the one doing the choosing, but you're the problem. 
You know, it's that kind of thing. You know, remember you saying you point your finger at one, everybody's pointing them back at you. Well, there's a simple way around that. Just point them all. What's wrong? You are. That's a perfect symbol for us. You are. You're going to come, come and get you. It's kind of like I was giggling with Stephanie about the, the Al-Anon conference in Texas. They have two areas in Texas. It's called the All-Texas Al-Anon Alateen Convention. The ATAC. <laughs> Perfect name for an Al-Anon convention. I love it. Absolutely, absolutely love it. So, you know, we have a, uh, you know, our tradition, you know, it says the only requirement for membership is that there be a problem of alcoholism in a relative or friend. And when we identify ourselves, I just did it. We, we, I, identify myself through the person who has the problem. Separating me from the fact that I've got one too. It kind of presents a safe place for me. A place where I can remain in blame, but still be a part of this by kind of mouthing, oh yeah, 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 yeah. I have a problem too, but not really. Because I identify myself through the alcoholic, because the tradition says it. That the only requirement is a problem of alcoholism in a relative or friend. I misread that tradition for a lifetime as the only requirement for membership is that the relative or friend be the problem. What does the tradition say? That the alcoholism is the problem. And we have a pamphlet that says call alcoholism the family disease. Yes, I've been affected by the alcoholic. Yes, you know, this, this is a family disease. When I did my first step with my beautiful sponsor, she said this to me. I didn't think she was so beautiful after she asked me this question. She said, Rick, have you really truly accepted the fact that alcoholism is a family disease and as such, it's a disease you have? What? I'm the good guy. Aren't we the good ones? This first alcoholic of mine, when I met her parents over a period of time, they said, you are so good for her. (laughs) Yes, I know. I'm just wonderful. Polish my halo. You know, she was really a mess before she met you, but she's really straightening out. Yes, yes, I know. She was really nothing without you, Rick. Oh, yes, thank you. Thank you very much. We kind of get uh, honored by people for what we do with them. And so I start to think, oh, wow. But it's something I've got. I chose three. It's not by accident. So am I who I am? because of an alcoholic or did I choose the alcoholics because of who I am when my sponsor started sponsoring me 23 years ago had the same sponsor for 23 years awesome she sent me this package to do my steps she sent me some stickers she said I want you to put these one of them on the mirror in your bathroom one of them on the rearview mirror in your car And the sticker was the answer to the question, what's the problem? And the sticker said, you're looking at the problem. (laughs) Now, some people say, that's abusive. I say that that is loving. Because if I'm going to remove, if I'm going to expand beyond relief and enter the world of recovery, I need to go from the place where you're the problem 
to the place where what I do is the problem. So the only requirement for membership is that there be a problem of alcoholism. In the early days of Al-Anon, everybody came into Al-Anon. They had you know, active alcoholics or just newly sober alcoholics in their life. Spousal, mostly. But we found over time, or you've, you know, have severely violent and abusive family alcoholism. But over recently, or not recently, but over time, we started to see people coming into Al-Anon who have really never had a relationship with somebody who drank. But they identify with alcoholism as the family moves through, kind of almost a historical alcoholism, those levels of denial, those levels of how do I actually have intimate, close, meaningful, honest relationships with other human beings. There's no alcohol drinking. I don't really remember seeing anybody drunk. But there's this pernicious wormy thing called alcoholism that works its way in. We hear alcoholics say, this is kind of more the tradition five thing, we hear alcoholics say, the problem was not drinking, the problem was living without drinking. Because for us, the problem is, you're drinking! It's simple! Stop! And we will be good. And listen to that saying, stop! And it's really what I'm saying is, stop! And I will be good. The Kathy shared on Friday night, you know, I'm so grateful to have, that there's an alcoholic in my life, really. So I'm grateful that somebody I love has a terminal disease that destroys the relationship. And is that not a profundity of selfishness that I can't even fathom when I look at it that way? But I am, and I totally agree with what she said, I am super grateful that there's a solution to alcoholism for all of us, and to you members of Alcoholics Anonymous who often invite us to your conventions, and you don't have to do that. Our tradition says we cooperate with you. Yours doesn't. <laughs> but you do that on a regular basis. You invite us to your, to your AA conferences, and you, you know, and you even come to the meeting. Sometimes you don't know it's the Al-Anon meeting. You know, we lock the door when you get in. Yes, this is an Al-Anon meeting. Let me out! No, you can't leave. Your worst nightmare. Oh, God, i got to listen to an Al-Anon blab for an hour. Oh, God, I need a drink. <laughs> but thank you for inviting us in, and it's an acknowledgement that there is a family disease here, and I got it. And our Tradition 5 gives us our marching orders. What do we do? You know, we don't have one purpose. We have but one. I love the way that's put. So if we had one purpose but, that would mean we had something else. I think when you put the but in front, it emphasizes how singular it is that what, what we do. We do one thing. We help families of alcoholics and friends. How do we do that? One, we practice those gorgeous steps of Alcoholics Anonymous ourselves, Not for them, for ourselves. Third part of that says, you know, we welcome and we give comfort. That's fellowship. So we do program the steps. We do fellowship, welcoming and give comfort. And if we're not together as a fellowship, I can't welcome you and give you comfort. But then we do a third thing that it, is that we detach with love. And that's a hard thing for us in Al-Anon. It says, you know, we encourage and we understand the alcoholic. Have you ever met one you needed to encourage? <laughs> what does that mean? You're looking pretty rough today, hon. Why don't you have another drink? Have you ever had to do that? I don't think so. But really what the encouragement means is that we 
seek out help ourselves regardless of what the alcoholic is doing him or herself. And our recovery may be, not will be, may be the very thing that inspires them to seek help themselves. And if it doesn't, I'm still getting better. And that's loving detachment. And in that tradition, it sums it up right there. In our, um, you know, in our book, you know, Alan on Family Groups, the classic edition. It's like that maroon book. I don't even know if it's still, still in print, but mine, I can still read mine, so I, I still have it. And so I don't know. I know there's a conference approving process. I don't know if there's a conference disapproving process for our literature, but I have a, So I have this Cal piece, and this is what it says in the Tradition Five. Whether the family the alcoholic's predictions or not, they may do well. Oh, sorry, wrong one. The Alan Family Groups. Going to AA meetings. This is in an Alan book. Going to AA meetings gives us greater understanding of the alcoholic's problem as we'll reading some of the many books on the subject, particularly the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, the original text. Tells us that in our Alan on literature. Doesn't say to use it in our meetings. But I need to understand these are the people I love. What is this about? I need to detach from this. So with that instruction, I went to a conference, the same one that Kathy had spoken at, but many years earlier, called the ORC, the Ontario Regional Conference. And on the Sunday morning, just like we're here now, there were flyers on the chairs advertising a big book seminar given by the original Joe and Charlie from Arkansas. And at the bottom, it said, Al-Anon's welcome. That's what it said. Al-Anon's welcome. Al-Anon Family Groups, the classic edition. We found it helpful to read some of the many books. I'm going to go. So I found myself in a kitchen, in a kitchen, kind of the, off the kitchen in this kind of hall in a church in London, Ontario, listening to the, these two guys. And there was this man, Joe McHugh, stood at a blackboard. That's how long ago this was. No tech. Blackboard and a piece of chalk. Talking about this thing that the people we love have that we don't have. The phenomenon of craving. That we don't get it. Just stop and you'll be good. I can't stop. Them, but they say. And so there's Joe talking to this whole room full of people, but he was talking to me. It took him half an hour to describe the phenomenon of craving for our alcoholic life. And then he said this. He said, and that's why when an alcoholic is in the bar all night and they come outside and they fall flat in their face in a puddle of water, and somebody comes over to help them, and we lift them up and say, Sir, can I help you? They will say, Yes, get me another drink. Because you see, I'd been in here a long time, enjoying the relief, but still holding on to that idea. You could stop if you want. I'd mouth the words, Yeah, you know, he's got this phenomenon of craving, but deep down inside, nah, you could really stop. And when I heard Joe say that, it was like God just took a penny and it went, boom, right down in. That this man and those women that I love, I didn't love bad people. I loved alcoholics. Alcoholics are not bad people. Anybody with a disease is not. I've never met an alcoholic who chose. I've never met anybody who has cancer who chose to have cancer. I have diabetes. I didn't choose to have diabetes. Yet we vilify the people that we love. And it was like an octopus on my face to my recovery. Because I could never get past 
that little belief deep down in there that, yeah, you could really. And following that instruction in Tradition 5 opened it up for me. Because if they're not the problem, and and that's the good news. That is the good news for us in Al-Anon. Because if I never cross the bridge from the side that says it's you to the side that says, oh my God, it's me, I am doomed. I cannot recover from something you've got. But I can recover from something. There's never been a time in my life when I haven't known alcoholism. It wasn't like somebody sat me down one day and said, hey, Rick, this is alcoholism. Every time I've looked at the end of my arm, there's a hand. And every time I've looked at the end of my leg, there's a foot. And that is how prevalent alcoholism is in my life. It wasn't like there was drinking all the time. And that was part of the confusion. And I think some of the, the focus of us living with alcoholism is the drinking. And there are these dramatic, traumatic episodes which are dramatic and traumatic. But I think that the real drama of alcoholism, the real effect of alcoholism are the periods in between the drinking. How do you reconcile this madman who was throwing the furniture out the front window last night with the guy who wants you to take you to Dairy Queen the next? How do you reconcile the fact that when he's not drinking, your mother is a nervous wreck and that whenever he comes home, she just wants to scream like hell at him and all he wants to do is go to bed? And it's that stuff that I found the hardest to understand. And so, you know, with family get-togethers, and they'd always turn up into a big blow-up, and and then I'd I'd start to do things. Well, there's one little story that I've started to tell. It was like so long ago. It was so long ago that we were in a car that had a bench seat in the front. Anybody remember that? I mean, we're old. I know I'm old. I have a white beard now. I think it looks better than the brown one I had. I think it looks pretty cool. White beard and a shiny head. <laughs> if it was longer, I'd be Santa Claus. <laughs> Anyhow, we would go up to a cottage that my, of, of, a, of a friend of my dad's, and there was the great promise, you see, because my father was a wonderful man. He was intelligent, joyous, told great jokes, loved to be with his family. And, and once the drinking started, all those other things. And so here we was, he was picking his young son, me, up to a cottage. And all, there was the promise of what you do at a cottage. You go fishing and you spend time outdoors and we loved all, all that stuff. And the stop was at the liquor store before we got to the cottage. And the image is vivid of me sitting in the passenger seat and dad running in and coming back out. And on that bench seat, putting the bottle between us. And we all know what happened from then on. And I went fishing by myself. I'm not moaning and whining. I'm just saying this is fact. This is what alcoholism does. And this man that was spending his, his, his weekend on the dock drinking whiskey and wanted to go fishing with his son was incapable of not sitting on the dock to drink whiskey because he was an alcoholic and he was not a bad man. And I wanted a relationship with that man, but I was powerless to me and I wasn't even drinking it. Sarah said it perfectly last night. You don't have to drink to suffer from alcoholism. That used to be one of our public information posters in Al-Anon, by the way. That's what it said. You don't have to drink to suffer from alcoholism. So, so true. Then I found that I started to do crazy little things as this little kid. And so one of the things I would do is that I'd take all the clothes out of my closet. I tell the story all the time. Take all the clothes out of my closet and I'd bring in a little table and a chair and I'd hang a light over the bar that holds the clothes and I'd make a sign that said, Keep out! 
and I'd paste it on the outside of the door. And I'd go inside the closet and close the door, turn on the light, and wonder why nobody would come in. Or I'd build a fort in my basement. I was always looking for ways to protect myself. That's alcoholism. That's what happens. Always looking for ways to protect myself. And I'd always put up the sign, keep out. And I'd go behind my protection. I'd go into my enclosure and desperately ache someone. When I was a young kid, I could not articulate any of that. But as an adult, reflecting back on how the disease affects, I can see that crystal clearly. And that was me. And that, as I grew up, became a real great metaphor also for my life. Said, I want you to come in, but everything about me is saying, go away. But I'm yearning inside. And we don't talk about the alcoholic, but I just want to tell one story. It's just kind of how it, in how it relates to us as the family. So my dad loved to do three things. He loved to drink, he loved to garden, and he loved to take off his clothes. <laughs> I think that's why I like female alcoholics so much. <laughs> Hi, how you doing? Whoosh! Wow, that was easy. <laughs> well, let's go. This is fantastic. Not of the prelude, baby. We're in. But so my dad would start gardening in the morning, and you'd think somebody who had these kind of three things he liked to do would start gardening in the front and work his way to the back. Oh, contraire. <laughs> the keen alcoholic mind started in the backyard. And as the day progressed and the many beers kind of, you know, added up, by mid-afternoon, in the mid-afternoon sun, Dad was full out on the front of the house. Awesome-looking garden. And he had, wasn't stripped totally naked. But if you can get the image, many beers later, you know, you know what the, the beautiful beer physique is, eh? Isn't it wonderful? And this was in the days before, where we weren't afraid of the sun. We didn't put suntan lotion on to protect from the sun. We put oil on to attract the sun. So get the image. And the Bermuda shorts were turned into a thong. <laughs> and sandals. The vision. I can just see my mother. You get in here now. I, you hunk, I want you. Right now. Isn't it amazing where it brings us, right? At one point, you know, we couldn't get enough of them. Now it's like, ah! You crawl into bed, throw the garbage out. Oh my God, the smell. Never talk about the smell. Alcohol. But anyhow, we had, the, you know, so the stubby brown bottle, you know, the beer belly, oiled up, you know, Bermuda shorts turned into a thong, cigarette. And we had this guy in the street that liked to race cars and motorcycles up and down the street. And, you know, my dad had a bit of an anger problem. You know, most alcoholics have an anger problem, don't they? The only ones I've ever met are angrier than the alcoholics are the Al-Anons. We're the ones that fantasize about killing them. They just want us to go away. And so my dad one day went after this guy. And he stopped and got out of the car. And they had this to-do in the street. Cigarette, brown stubby bottle. And there we are. Not one of the classic symptoms of alcoholism. The face. You do it, I'm embarrassed. You're making a fool of yourself, I'm ashamed. You're showing the world your ass. I can't even show my face. And is that not one of the sick bits of the family disease of alcoholism? And in my solution, my solution is you got to stop doing that so that I... Amazing thing happened to me in 19... Well, it was 1964. An amazing thing happened to my mother. Somebody introduced her to Al-Anon. 1964. She went to an international conference in 1965 in Toronto. 
she saw little kids running around. Alatine was six years old when my mother... Alatine, not the kids, the program, was six years old. And she said, I want that for my kids. So a few years later, there was an Alatine conference happening in Toronto. And the Alateens said to the Al-Anon groups, hey, we need places for the Alateens who are coming from out of town to stay. This is kind of, you know, before you had to give a pint of blood and submit to a retinal scan before you could be an Alateen sponsor. (laughs) God help us. And so into this active alcoholic home, my mother said, yeah, I'll take three. (laughs) Now that was almost 50 years ago, half a century And this man you're looking at now, this 61-year-old man, was a boy of 11. And into this home, three Alateen members from California. And for the first time in my young life, I felt a feeling I had never felt. Okay. It was that simple and that profound. And here I am, half a century later, and I can still remember the power of my connection and that's the power of the that's the power of the honesty that we share with one another. That's the power of the head nod. Look around the room. We're all bo- Al-Anon bobbleheads, all of us. <laughs> Have one on the you know, kind of on the dashboard of my car, lowest bobblehead. <laughs> right beside the shoe. <laughs> Throw that shoe. Isn't that a weenie way to start a fellowship? You know, Bill had this spectacular white light experience. (laughs) Sitting in that Mayflower Hotel, all that stuff. What did Lois do? She threw a shoe. (laughs) I would have belonged to that other one. But here we are. So the shoe and the bobblehead. But the power of the yes, the power of the I understand. And so I started going to Alateen. And they said some amazing things to me. They said, Rick, your father is an alcoholic. He is not a bad man. Really? I thought he was a bad man. Because the dynamic in my home was this. He wasn't home all the time. He drank sometimes at home, sometimes he drank out. But mom was always there. And I was always there. And she had nobody to talk to except her oldest boy. And so the oldest boy heard everything. I was her five-year-old confidant, her seven-year-old sex counselor, her nine-year-old therapist. And that is not something my mother did to me. That is alcoholism circulating in a family system. And I've had as much, I had as much work to do around resentment against my mother. And I'm saying this in a room full of mothers. But when we acknowledge that we were not doing that, alcoholism was working its way in our life, and it was just kind of spewing out heard Kathy say it when she was in Toronto in March. It's like, rabies. Everybody's foaming at the mouth. So there's nobody to blame here. This is about acknowledgement that I, too, am part of this system. And I stayed in Alatine, like I said, until they kicked me out, and it was a beautiful thing. And I found, what I found there became the greatest, my greatest help, and as time went on, sadly, my greatest handicap. And that was what I've already talked about. Because what I found was relief. And I misinterpreted relief. Thank God for the relief. I want the relief. I have a cold. I take cold medicine. My cold is not gone. 
but I get relief from the symptoms so I can actually then do the things I need to do to cure, to help the, cure, the cold cure itself. When I get relief here, when I get support, when I get love, when I get laughter, when I get fun, when I kind of get people doing the same thing, then that is the help I need to do my recovery. Not talk about the steps. Work the steps. And when I was at LT and I didn't work them. But I love the relief and I'm grateful for the relief. But then as I carried on, I thought that that was that. And so when I couldn't, when when the relief started to dissipate, I started to find it in other places. This is not a popular thing to say in Al-Anon. But this is what I did. So don't do what I did. I found it in service. With a title of service. Not by being of service to others, but by having a title. Rick, the GR. Rick, the DR. Rick, the area chairperson. Rick, the host committee chairperson. I found that my ego played into that. And what I was thinking I had recovery, all I, get, all I was getting was a deferment until the real stuff hit. And I, need, I had an opportunity to share one of these things one time at an assembly. So I'm not going to say where it was. An election assembly. I shared, I shared this story. Asked my sponsor one time, I was at an assembly and somebody tapped, his, tapped me on the shoulder. He was a trustee. He said, hey, I think you'd make a great delegate. Really? <laughs> Had to cut a hole in the door so I could get my head through. That's what happens when you're only getting relief. Called my sponsor. Told her what this guy had said to me. And there was a pause. Whenever your sponsor pauses, buckle up. <laughs> <laughs> And she said, well, Rick, don't you think your area deserves a delegate who's practiced all 12 steps? Black belt, Al-Anon. <laughs> Saved my life. I didn't run. I shared that story at this election assembly. The newly elected delegate that afternoon came up to me after I shared that story and said, I said, it's not too late. The being of service part happens at the, you know, we'd be of service in our group and all kinds of stuff. But may I not be so hooked on the title of service as the function of service. Hey, Rick, are you free tonight? You need to come over and do a fifth step. Absolutely, George, come on over. Hey, Rick, you got any time tonight? Well, you know what? The voice is on. Yeah, I got time. Hey, Rick, you know, can we meet for a coffee? Yeah, I got, yeah, I got time. Hey, you know, we need someone to clean up after the meeting. Well, yeah, I got, yeah, yeah, I can, yeah, yeah, I can do that. Let us be of service to one another in the ways that's inconvenient to us. Because if my service is inconvenient, it's service. Thank you. Last night, remind me of your name. Cindy, Cindy, last night, said the most beautiful thing to me. We had a lovely chat after after you spoke. And she said, I I said, I need to go and I'm going to FaceTime my wife. And Cindy said, thank your wife for allowing you to come away for for the time away from home. I shared that with my wife and she almost cried. So thank you for that. You have no idea what that little thing you said to me gave to my wife and I. And so may we do that. That's, I don't know where I went. Thank you, God. I don't know where that all came from. (laughs) I think I was telling you my story somewhere in there. Anyway, they they kicked me out of Alateen and I hung around in Al-Anon for a while. And, and you know, then I just, I met her and I stopped. and, and, And it was just that simple. It wasn't a conscious decision to stop. I just kind of, you know, I, I, it was the cheap night at the, uh, Tuesdays was the cheap movie night. So my new wife and I went to the movies and I 
missed my meeting, and over time it was irrelevant that the meeting was on tonight. I just stopped because I had found my solution. It was turned into yet another problem. And I came back in 1987. And so I'd like to share, I know that this is sometimes a hard message. I get that. I get it. I get it. And I, I've even had people say to me, you know, you're criticizing Al-Anon. I'm not. I love this thing. What I'm saying is don't do what I did. <laughs> don't do some of the stuff that I did. But, you know, peppered in our literature, and this is an Al-Anon book. It just has a brown cover on it. Now, I don't know if you have Al-Anon police in Kentucky, but we have them at home. I've had people confront me. What book was that you were reading from? Well, it's a Rodette book. I just happen to have a brown cover. This was our original daily reader. So again, to this whole idea of alcoholism, the family disease, is something I'm inflicted. Big difference between being affected by something. It's distanced me. Inflicted with. There's no way around that. None. And listen to what it says in our literature. June 3rd. If we really do want peace of mind, the first thing to realize is that it does not depend on conditions outside us, but those inside us. That's our Al-Anon literature. Another one. Let me find it. Here it is, here it is, here it is. If I accept the fact that the principal source of my unhappiness is in me, I'll be giving myself a good reason to do something about me. Can you imagine if we put that on our public information posters? <laughs> Our meetings would be a little smaller. <laughs> Is there a drinker in your home? You're the problem. Get to Al-Anon. I'm not going anywhere near that, baby. But listen to this one. This is right out of our Al-Anon literature. July 27th. Al-Anon's prime purpose. It's kind of like the prime directive in Star Trek. Al-Anon's prime purpose is to do what? To help us deal with the problems that alcoholism has aggravated. Not caused. My sponsor says to me, adding an alcoholic to you, you adding an alcoholic to your life is like sprinkling miracle grow on your defects. <laughs> and then that book was published, April 10th, 1939. All those years ago. They, they sent a message to us, the non-drinkers. Whether the family has spiritual convictions or not, they may do well to examine the principles by which the alcoholic member is trying and our design for a living is not a one-way street, or in today's speak, is as good for the alcoholic. And here we are today in Erlanger, Erlanger, <laughs> Kentucky, and that message is as appropriate today, New York and all around. And here we be. So how do we get out of this? How do we get out of this? This is not a message of doom. This is a message of profound hope. Because the good message is that if I stay stuck on the side where it's you, I will die. Alcoholism, the family disease, I believe, is as progressive a disease as alcoholism is for the alcoholic. But if somewhere God's grace comes into my life and I'm willing to admit, like that sticker said, you're looking at the problem, and we have available to us a set of steps that can lead us to a spiritual awakening, where we will reach a point where we will look in the mirror and we will not know who that person is, where we will be relating to people in a way that we don't even know who the person is that's relating to them. And that's what will happen, where I no longer to feel my sign keep out. Mine is now, come in, please. Come in, please. That's what I mean. That's where we can go. We can go. 
But what is that? What else does this look like? I talked to you know about you know the, they do it. You know, we're embarrassed. There's other things we talk about in Al-Anon a lot. You know, we said the biggest misnomer I believe in Al-Anon for me is that we are people pleasers. Well, there's kind of like a whole idea underneath people pleasing that there, I have a scintilla of regard for your well-being, and the actual fact is that that's false. <laughs> that the only thing I was ever looking for was not to please you, but rather for you to approve of me. Because I have never been a people pleaser, but I have spent my life almost going to hell seeking your approval. I am an approval sucker. <laughs> Try that one with me. Do that. Do that. This is like the, 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 the contact element of the talk. Let's do this. Here. Do it. One, two, three. That's right. There we go. There we go. And what that does, you see, is it fills up for a little bit of time. It'll fill me up, and I get some relief, and I believe that I'm better. As I've created something, you've said something or done something, or I've created some situation, oh, wonderful. That worked. And then it goes away, but in my mind, what worked once, it will work again. And isn't that another definition? If you're saying you're doing the same thing again and again and expecting a different result, I don't quite believe that that's what that is. I think we do the same thing over and over and over again, expecting the result I got the first time and believing that that was the answer. And I spent, you hear alcoholics talk about that, spend their whole life chasing the effect of that first drink. I spend my whole life chasing that effect of that first kind of euphoric sense of approval. And what do I have to do to get that from you? Another thing we often see is that low sense of self-esteem. You know, I think low is too high (laughs) sometimes for where I was in my life. And how does that manifest? How does that look? I spent my life teaching high school, and one of the ways that mine manifested was I would not have my photograph taken because I abhorred my own image. Couldn't look at myself in the mirror, couldn't buy clothes. I chopped at my own hair, what little I had, because I could not. I was incapable of sitting in a chair with a man standing beside me, behind me, saying, how do you want to look? Because my answer was, I want to disappear. I want to vanish. I had two university degrees, and I was chopping at my own hair. I wouldn't buy clothes, and I refused to have my picture taken for the yearbook. So if you take a look at the first six years of my career, there's my name in a blank spot above it. Picture not available. Low self-esteem is too high for where I was. And did anybody do that to me? No. But alcoholism does things. And that's where mine went. Did anybody ever say you're dumb, ugly, stupid, you can't do anything, can't accomplish things? Never, never did they say it. But somewhere in the midst of alcoholism, I got that message. When I was a little kid, I remember this the other day, I had this three, beautiful little two-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter. You know, she'd just be in potty training. So we had this little little stool that she has to stand on, you know, then she sits on the pot, you know, for like for an hour and... <laughs> okay, honey, it's time, you know. Okay, darling. But anyway, I, I was in the bathroom when she wasn't in there, and there was this little stool. And I remember when I was a little kid, standing on a stool, looking in the mirror, poking my face, saying, what's this? What is this thing looking back at me? That's where I was. And nobody did that to me. But alcoholism. Yeah. But there's even more. We start to take a look at what's the problem. What are some of the things? I think it's important to identify what we, if, if this is a disease, that means there are some symptoms to this disease. 
That's pretty, pretty standard. So here's one of mine. The granddaddy one of all for me is that I needed to be needed. It wasn't I was looking for someone to love me. I was looking for someone to need me. And I found it in spades. You know, I was, I'll, t- I'll tell you the story. I know I'm running out of time. You know, this is just to appease you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's watching his thing. You know, I'm in Alan on and on and on and on and on and on. And so, you know, I, I, was, I, I, was, I was a high school band director. That's what I did for my whole life. And I was studying classical music. And so I auditioned to go to this music school out in Western Canada. I got accepted to go to the school. And so I got phoned by the people who accepted me. said, why don't you contact the other four people that are going to be, four of the other people in your group. It was five. I played the tuba. So it was this brass group. And arrange a time for a rehearsal before you come to the program. And you'll be ahead when you start. That's a sane idea. So I called three of the others who made a time for arrangement for this rehearsal, and then I called her. And I'm here to tell you that I don't even have to see the alcoholic before I start to vibrate. Because what started out as a short little, was supposed to be a call to arrange a rehearsal, turned into this hour-long lust fest over the telephone. And she was exciting, and she was energetic, and she'd been places that I had never been, and I wanted to go, and she'd played music with people and I wanted to play music with. And she was exciting and energetic, and I was like vibrating after this hour-long call. And so you know, we start to talk a little bit more. And if you're an Alan unlike me, you're a good investigator. And so, you know, I started asking around about her, and I found out, you know, that, that she was really pretty and that she was really a great trumpet player and, that, you know, she was really experienced. And, and I wasn't terrifically experienced, you know, at least not with other people. <laughs> Thank you for that laughter of identification. <laughs> And so, you know, we're talking on the phone more and more. And as, so, as the conversations went on, she started telling me about her problems. I love that. Because I'd tell her how to fix them. And your brother did what to you? I can help you with that. Your dad did what? I can help you with that. You're feeling what? Oh, I'll save you, hon. I didn't know I was doing that. Then one day I'm working. You know where I, a guy like me gets a summer job? In the liquor store. <laughs> Honest truth. I was working in the liquor store on a Saturday afternoon. She calls me, drunk. Drunk. Said, my boyfriend was supposed to come over. He didn't come over. I drank this bottle of wine. Do you want to come over? And I've been in Alateen a long time. And there was a little, little, little voice in my head that went, Rick, this is bad. But that rest of my body went, I can help you with that. And so the day came when we met at the airport and she comes walking in and she was bouncing. It was awesome. Little blue shirt, you know, the sparkling black hair and kind of walking along the, you know, up, up to us where I was sitting with my mom and my dad. And, you know, my eyes, I'm riveted on her. You know, my mother's having a mild cardiac arrest as she comes up. The eyes are popping right out of my dad's head and she comes right in front of us and this big sigh, hi, and bends right over, you know, the eyes popped out of my head then. And I was in Alateen long enough to know I was about to have a spiritual awakening. <laughs> and we get on the airplane, and, you know, and, and I, I ordered a drink. And, you know, she, and, you know when an Alanon says they order a drink, we mean one. And she had a drink and another and another. And so if the time it took to fly from Toronto to Alberta, she had five. And, you know, if there's anything I say to you that you can take to the bank, I said she had five because I have never met an Alanon that can't count. <laughs> <laughs> We're good at it. And conversely, I've never met an alcoholic who can. (laughs) 
don't we all do that? You know, that, that, that amazing question, the stupidest question we can say or the stupidest statement we can make. They come in, they've been drinking, and we say, you've been drinking! <laughs> like, that's not obvious. And then we say, and how much have you had to drink? And what do they say? A couple. Universal. I believe that somewhere, unknown to us, the Al-Anons, there is a school for alcoholics. And they go to school, and it's a very short lesson, but an important one, and this is the lesson. Alcoholic, never... Do you understand that? Yes. Go and have a, have a good time. That's the lesson that they get, because it's universal. No matter where you go, in your country and mine, everybody knows that answer. So we get out there, and we start to play music together, and I found out that there's some things you, when you, you do, it's really great when there's another human being present. I mean, it's really much more pleasurable when there's someone else there. <laughs> But then there was something even better. And is there anything better? Oh, if you're an Alan like me, there is. So she would tell me her problems. And I felt whole, wonderful, and full. And a couple of weeks into this, what I used to call a relationship, but my dear friend at home said, no, Rick, that was not a relationship. That was a parasitic entanglement. (laughs) (laughs) Heard another guy refer to it one time as two ticks without a dog. (laughs) (laughs) that's what I get into that's where relief brought me (laughs) she says this to me she says you know Rick I've been seeing a therapist for a long time but I don't need to see that therapist anymore because now I have you (laughs) salvation and that lasted for a fair length of time But like all things of this world and all things of my creating, all things that exempt God and bring me at the center, weird. Like a dog that catches a car, what do you do with it when you get it? So I then started seeking that in my work. I started seeking it everywhere. And it led to just untold ruin. Developed this anger problem. I love my anger. That's why I identified so much with your talk about that. You know, I perceived my anger as power totally wrong about that but I perceived it that way so when you're feeling powerless and I'm not accepting the power I need to find some power and so mine was in blasting at you and blowing up at you and doing things like that so after a long story I found myself in therapy and I'm one that believes that the therapy and this can work in tandem with one another it worked for me and so I was doing this anger thing, and I was with a therapist that didn't talk. He just got me to do all kinds of things. So he brought me into this rage episode, and he taped it. And when we were finished, he said, I want you to sit down. And he said, I want you to tell me what you felt while you were doing that. And I'm smashing and pounding and doing all those things I love to do. And, you know, people had run away when I did that. I was on a school trip one time with kids. They did something. I just exploded. I got so angry, felt so powerful. The other supervisor locked herself in the room. She was afraid I was going to get her. I had a kid at school one time come and touch my tie. I grabbed him and threw him into a locker. I had a kid stick his tongue out at me from a curtain at a concert. I'm standing there. He's there. All the audience sees it. I put down my baton. I go up on the stage and I almost pound the kid. Come back out and conduct the concert. That's me. That's me. I felt powerful. Then he played the tape. Because that thing that I thought I was doing to protect you and everything around. I'm not accepting the power. And left to my own devices, we get a daily reprieve, like our friends in Alcoholics Anonymous say. I believe that if we practice the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous ourselves, that those things are true for us too. I just believe that. We get that daily reprieve. And if I'm 
missing out on my spiritual way of living, that stuff starts to come back. Doc Severinsen, the trumpet player that used to, anybody remember Doc Severinsen? Yeah, we're all so old in this room. <laughs> Young people say, oh, phenomenal trumpet player, fronted the Tonight Show band for many years. Every day was up in front of the you know, worldwide audience, said this. If I miss practicing for one day, I know it. I miss practicing two days, the band knows it. I miss practicing three days, the world knows it. If I miss doing my spirit, my RPM, reading prayer meditation, my spiritual routine, first day, I know it. Second day, Lee's, my wife knows it. Third day, everybody in the road knows it. I need to do this on a daily daily basis and other things victimization all that kind of stuff I'm running out of time and I really am looking at this now <laughs> Sunday we all want to go home and so you know on and on right but that, that's the thing so what I encourage you to do if you're buying into this you might be hating it saying God this blabbermouth from Canada but if you're if you're buying into this at all the notion that the that the recovery is the answer the solution is the answer and I don't need a solution if I don't have a problem I invite you and don't answer this question me what are my actions and the why am i still here 30 years later my sponsor says it like this alcoholism brought me here life keeps me here great way to say that life is what keeps me here so i spent too much of this thing doing it without a sponsor many years ago 23 years ago i sent a letter to this woman in arkansas asking her to be my sponsor she sent me a package back and uh, she said yes i cried because I did this thing alone for too long, which by definition means I wasn't doing it. The seminal moment in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous is not when Bill saw the white light. It's when he met Bob in that gatehouse on Mother's Day all those years ago when one of us meets another one. That's the moment. And if I, ne- I never said to anybody, I want... So I sent my, the, the, you know, my now sponsor, my then potential sponsor, this letter and said... I'm sick to death of doing this by myself. I'd met her at a conference and you know, she, we went out on the Friday night. She talked on the Saturday night. We, Saturday after she said, hey, let's go for some ice cream. So I walk in the street in downtown Toronto. She said, hey, tell me about you. She said, well, I tried to chop my wife's head off with an ax on a camping trip. She laughed. She just told us a story about trying to drown her husband in a bathtub. <laughs> I identified. You know, I had this, I had this, this, this built-in list of who asked for a sponsor. Has to be a man, has to be active in service, has to live close by. I left off potential murderer. But God knew what I needed, and there's a relationship that's developed there that I could spend an hour talking about. But that's what happens when you say to somebody, I want what you got. Will you show me how you got it? And she did that to me, and she showed me how to work the steps. I don't know if this is the way to work the steps, but this is how I work the steps. I bought every book in Al-Anon, and I used two AA books, the 12 and 12 and the Alcoholics Anon, their big book. She said, read everything about just one topic, step one. Answer the questions in the back of Pastor Recovery. Read me your answers. I did that. She said, congratulations. You've done step one to the best of your ability. Move on. I'll say that again. Move on. That's recovery. That's not relief. Well, it's relief and recovery. Move on. I did two that way, three that way. I did this massive inventory. I got a plane, went down, did a fifth step. Took two days. I don't recommend that, but that's what it took. We burnt it. I kept my list of resentments and all that kind of stuff. Come back in and I say to her, there's not a single thing I have not told you. And she looked at me. That's not a, that's a, do that one. Oh, breath. Because my deepest fear, and the steps take us the opposite way. I'd spent my whole life wanting to get to New York, but I've been walking toward Los Angeles. 
And the steps take us, whether we want to do them or not. You know, we just have to do them. Action, it's that kind of action against our will. The unintuitive action is what we take. And all of a sudden, they pointed me in the right direction. And many great things have transpired. And this would be a great place to start, start a 12-step talk. So you can take a break and we'll go, no, I'm not going to do that. <clears throat> I would just like to share one, just one thing that happens. Because we all have results of doing this stuff. And then there are our unique little stories of joy. Beautiful things that happen just because we show up with God. That we accept. We don't accept a power. We discover a power. I was awake spiritually. I started to do all that stuff, and each one, as each one got ticked off, I started to experience that there is a power. This world is not straight. This world is crooked. But there is a God who can hit this crooked, unpredictable life. That's my touchstone. That's my anchor. A personal, experienced God. Not the one you tell me about. The one that I, we each get to experience. We take the crystal clear, conquer. So one of my things was that I never wanted to have children. My sponsor's theory, when I you know, talked about that in my fifth step, was, well, she said, you, she said, I think you knew that on some level your anger could be triggered and you were afraid of what you would do to a young man. That could be right. But I married this beautiful woman back uh, in two th- five years ago, but you know, we lived together for a few years before that. We started dating in 2000. It took us a long time to get this together. And she has three grown children. Her daughter, the middle child, had a baby. 18 minutes after this baby was born, they invited us into this delivery room. I'd never been in there. They're gooey. (laughs) Never seen that before. And her youngest son, my my wife's youngest son, reached out his hand and said, you're going to be a really important man in this boy's life. You know, sometimes in society they say, make your five-year plan. Write down what you want. My belief is that if all I ever got was what I wanted, I'd be ripping myself off. I have one thing on my list now. I want what God wants. I remain open to whatever my... And as the years go on, the relationship I've developed with Lucas has become... I was away in one of these weekends. I was in Omaha, actually, and I come back and I told that story about the, the fort in the closet. Taking, the lawn, taking all the cushions off the lawn furniture and put it in the way yet. And I often get home earlier on a Sunday and over for, you know, the grandkids come over and bring their parents, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I get in and Lucas comes running up, Grandpa, come on downstairs, see what I built. So he brings me downstairs and Lucas had built a fort with the cushions from outside and he invited me in. And I lied there so grateful and open to God can give us a message because you see, as a young kid, it was natural to do that. What was unnatural for me, what the alcoholism was, was keep out. What Lucas said was, they sleep over. He has a little sister. The little girl sleeps with my wife. Lucas and I sleep in, in the guest room. <laughs> we get relegated. <laughs> and so his mom came to pick him up. And she said, hey, Rick, i got to tell you a story. When we were packing for the overnight, I said to Lucas, do you want your, do you want your comfort? He said, no, Mom, it's okay. Said, I'm sleeping with Grandpa Rick. How does that happen? How does that happen? This guy that never wanted kids is now allowed to participate in deep and meaningful way in the lives with this eight-year-old, with this six-year-old little girl, with that two-and-a-half-year-old little girl that's potty training, and will be allowed to participate in the life of the new one that's coming. I have adult children who call me their stepfather. 
They never have to do that. My sponsor said, let the kids come to you, and they have come to me in the most profound ways. And the reason they've come to me is because you have shown me that there is a way to live life that is so far beyond my will, so far beyond my anger, that there is a way to be open to this universe that we are attracted to people and people are naturally attracted to us. The keep out sign is gone. Come in, please. And I'll keep doing this on a daily basis in every way I can. This means more to me now than it ever has. There's not a single person drinking in my life, but I still have alcoholism, the family disease, and this means everything to me. There's a beautiful painting that stands in this side altar in St. Paul's Cathedral in London, England. It's, the tr- it's a picture of a traditional robe figure standing with its right hand raised, knocking on the door of a cottage. It's holding a lantern in its left hand. Up in the top corners of the painting, it says, The Light of the World. And if you look closely at the cottage, there's no handle on the door. And beneath it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. God's been circling around the whole time. I've been locked in there. And as we start to do these things that we don't want to do, we want the results, but we want to, don't, want, don't want to take the action. So I start t- taking the actions and I don't get results I want. I get results I didn't even know I wanted. Start to open the door. My sponsor said to me many years ago, she said, Rick, you don't think your way into right action. You act your way into right thinking. And when I continue to do my 12 steps, when I continue to do my reading prayer meditation, when I continue to say yes to service, when I continue to be an active member of this fellowship, when I do, as my sponsor says, the deal, I start to open the door and God comes in. That we do not think our way in. We act our way into right thinking. And the actions we take, steps of Alcoholics Anonymous law.